I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Election night. In total, there are 23 state primary races. And this is KSL News Radio's special coverage of early results. Decision 2022. With hosts Jeff Kaplan and Scott Simpson on KSL News Radio. Less than an hour left to vote in Utah's primary. We're expecting the first results sometime after 8 o'clock tonight. That's when the primary campaigns end and the bean counters take over. The closely watched bean counters. And in primaries where officials have committed to transparency uh, across the state of Utah. I'm Jeff Kaplan. Uh, joining me this evening, Scott Simpson. He's the CEO of Utah Credit Unions Association, and he's the former senior policy advisor for Orrin Hatch. He is also the former executive director for the Utah Republican Party. He's one of the hosts of KSL at Night. You have one heck of a resume, dude. Well, yeah, I I suppose it may what it means is I'm old and I'm starting to feel old. I understand that exactly. <laughs> so we're sitting here on primary night waiting for the first results and trying to figure out where the drama lies. Because yeah. tr- traditionally on primary night it's pretty simple. The incumbent wins, everybody goes home. That's true. Um it, it's a different day though uh, in politics. Uh there's a lot of Agitation, I think, amongst the electorate. Obviously, that's fostered uh, challenges in a lot of races up and down the ticket. And like you said, lots of drama uh, and and uh, from, from the top all the way down to the very local races. So I think we have to start at the top. And the Senate race, Mike Lee, Becky Edwards, Ali Isom. How do things line up as we head toward the polls closing? Well... You know, the interesting thing is, and we've been talking about it for months now, the fact that you have two challengers taking on, uh, you know, an incumbent that's well-funded, it it makes taking out that incumbent much more complicated. They end up dividing votes. Um, The chatter that I hear in that race, and this is unscientific, but the chatter that I hear is um, that the two of them are going to split 35% of the vote. You're talking about Becky Edwards and Allie Isom. Correct. Yeah, those two challengers. And that leaves 65% for Mike Lee. Yeah, and the point, uh, what will be interesting is to see how the campaigns are doing expectation management with Mike. You know, what what are they saying to the senator to, you know, you should expect this today. So what you're we're talking about, in essence, is how much he wins by tonight, should he win, is a barometer for how he's going to do this fall? That's exactly right. I, th- I, I do think it's going to be instructive. It's the first time we'll be able to put a number around, a fence around that group of people that you wouldn't ordinarily, a Republican could count on November, that he's going to have to work hard to win over um, and, and may not be able to. And he's had a rough run during this campaign. No doubt about it. It's not the position that an incumbent wants to be in. Having to answer for the texts for the most part. That's the thing that comes to mind quickly. Yeah. The texts with the White House during January 6th. Yeah, for sure. That's been the most recent. I'm not sure that that's landed as much as just kind of tone and his, he's got this rigidity of ideology that some people value and others find irritating. And that's manifest itself in legislative moves that are frustrating. Interesting. And I don't know if it matters. It seems like he's an expert at mansplaining and he's running against two women. Yeah, well, uh, I, 
I'm not sure I would characterize it that way, but it's it is unbelievably challenging How about this? for him. He is instructive when sure, he speaks. Sure, yeah, and and it's not an unusual thing for a United States senator to be sort of professorial, right? They try to instruct all the time. That's their specialty. That's a good word choice, by the way. Uh, well, so, sorry. Let's let's move down ballot. We have a bunch of congressional races across the state. Uh, first up, Representative Blake Moore is wrapping up his first term in Congress in District 1, running against Tina Cannon and Andrew Badger. You would think that there'd be the greatest chance of an upset when somebody's only had two years in office. That's right. Uh, it, it is probably... The most vulnerable he will be in the next, you know, however long he determines to serve. It sounds like you expect he will prevail. I think he will, yeah. Again, um, I could be surprised. I lived up north, and the sign war is part of how we we evaluate its unofficial polling. But Badger's got a following, and and there's some energy. I'm, I'm not sure that Cannon has has gathered that, but she could end up being a spoiler for Badger, obviously. Okay, now you've been in the game. You were the executive director of the Utah Republican Party. Yes, sir. Do the number of yard signs you see matter? <laughs> it really doesn't. Uh, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't, but it is, and it, what it does look like and feel like is a campaign that's organized, a campaign that's got machinery in place to put those up, to, to, to place them, you know, around the state. Gotcha. House District 2, Chris Stewart running for re-election against Aaron Ryder. Yeah, you know, with all of the energy going to other races, Ryder, I, I think, came out of the gate fairly strong, but I think has faded pretty dramatically. I don't anticipate an upset there. Uh, House District 3, John Curtis down in Provo against Chris Herrod. John, this is the fourth time I think they've run against one another for this race. Uh, Curtis has proven capable of really taking a hammer to him, and I don't anticipate anything different this time. House District 4 is Burgess Owens against Jake Hunsaker. He has outsourced uh, campaigning. Who is he? Which main, one? Uh, sorry, uh, Congressman Owens. It's just no-show, right? He, he's not engaged at any level uh, in the sort of retail politics. I think he's shown up on the campaign trail you know, for county conventions and that sort of thing. But engaging his other opponents in debate of any sort, completely uh, not showing up. Having said that, I think the power of incumbency, it's its not a requirement. Uh, he he doesn't really need to. But but does he? Well, we're going to find out tonight. And, and as I think back, usually I get to speak to these candidates during the course of a campaign. Uh, I never spoke with Burgess Owens on the air during this, this time around at all. Yeah, uh, and I do think eventually... There's a price to be paid for that. I think if, if, he, if he continues this, uh, the, the electorate expects, I believe, their public officials to be able to stand in front of the public and make an argument. And, uh, and so at some point, he's, he'll need to stand in front of microphones and camera lenses. Has he been standing in front of other sources, reaching to his core voters? I've seen, uh, not not particularly. I think, you know, garden variety campaign, get out the vote, mail pieces, that sort of thing, of course. But but using the media channels as I would expect it, no, not so much. Okay, perhaps we have to have a discussion about the other race that has been absolutely eye-popping. David Lovett, <laughs> David Levitt running for Utah County Attorney. Where do we begin here? I don't, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe this. Um, I think he... He 
brought a lot of this on himself and not necessarily the charges you know the the allegations but he he was the one that pulled the trigger to tell the story you know i i have been around the block in this business i've been doing this for 40 years i've been in places i've seen things i will never forget sitting in a newsroom watching that news conference just looking to someone next to me and saying he said what yeah well, inoculation, the idea of inoculating a candidate against something that may harm them downstream is not new. That's a legitimate strategy. But I, I just feel like he handed his his detractors, maybe not necessarily even his opponents, but his detractors, uh, a playbook. And, 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 you know, the media is just sal- it's salacious well, and they've beaten him over the head with it. There's such a thing as getting out in front of a story. I understand that True. in politics, but this is cannibalism that he mentioned by name. In denying it that nobody was talking about. And we were just left stupefied. And I imagine a lot of Utah County voters who aren't dialed in to the specifics of the race heard that and it definitely registered. Yeah. And, you know, the underlying story there is his he had his own staff run against him. Right. Initially filed a run. They have since gotten out of the race. They withdrew in favor of a stronger challenger. But I think there's some underlying discord there that is now... coming to play uh, at a lot of different levels. So what are you hearing about this race on the ground there? No, uh, <laughs> mostly I'm hearing from sort of embarrassed voters, uh, people that just, uh, you know, don't understand it. They're scratching their head. They they think uh, uh, it it is a weird game and mostly just kind of holding their nose and hoping to get through this evening. Is it safe to say that the Utah County political machine, if you will, has lined up against David Levitt? I think he does have a problem. Yeah, I think it's clear that there is enough discord down there that he could have a problem. And there was the problem with the death penalty, which didn't land well with many of his voters. That's some of the structural problems that you were talking about. He's taken on law enforcement. He's, you know, talking about, you know, criminal reform. And and that that agitation coupled with sort of the salaciousness of these strange news stories are, are not helping him at he, all. he grabs all the headlines but he's running against i believe jeff gray that's right and uh about jeff gray he's simply not david levitt <laughs> at this point i think that might be it yeah indeed um, i mean well-respected lawyer i think he's got fairly decent bona fides in the community so you know i i think he's fine but it's it's not about him we're gonna have to talk about over the weekend there were allegations of let's say vote insecurity uh problems with voting machines that bubbled up over the weekend on social media uh we're gonna bring in Lindsay Ertz from ksl news radio who's worked extensively over this past year uh reporting on election security vote transparency and find out what's going on how the machine Counts all the votes. That's coming up on KSL News Radio. Our election night coverage will continue. Scott Simpson, Jeff Kaplan here for the evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office to meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.